resurrection and the task of the church. This is the kind of so what moment, and this is stuff that I've been trying to explore now for a while, and I guess I'm quite glad that I have been called to my present job for this reason at least, that my feet are kept very firmly on the ground when I'm thinking about missiology, thinking about what the church should be doing in the world, because when I think of the church in the world, this is not for me a grandiose intellectual idea. It's about very specific parishes in very specific towns and cities in my part of the north of England. And um, this is quite scary because for much of my life I've been uh, teaching in university contexts where it's easy to dream big dreams and, and think this is what the church ought to be doing. And so, suddenly somebody grabs hold of you and puts you in a real-life situation and says, okay, let's just see how it works, shall we? And you discover that there's all, all sorts of things which are not nearly as easy as they sound in theory when the theologian is sitting at his or her desk and just, just musing and mulling things over. And so what you're getting now is work in progress uh, in both senses. Work, intellectual work, I'm trying to think these things through, but actual work in that I am trying to lead a rather diverse diocese into mission and uh, into a mission which is uh, re refueled and refreshed, I hope, by a theological understanding of what we're actually all about. The word mission has been very slippery in Christian parlance over the last many years, means many different things to many different people. And what I'm trying to do in this session is to tease out some of the parameters by which we might actually understand how mission should be shaped and how we should be energized for it. We in the UK, in the Church of England, but also wider ecumenically, have had a phrase which has been a buzzword for us over the last um, year or three, and that is mission-shaped church, mission-shaped church, which was a report that came out a few years ago and was a way of saying uh, the church is not an organization that simply fosters its own life and its own organization and its own concerns, and then if there's any energy left over, does a bit of mission on the side. Um, we have all too often, uh, de facto at least, thought of it like that, and we've been wrong so to do. The church, rather, is the body of Christ which exists for God's mission in the world, and that the shaping of the actual life of the church ought to be a shaping not for its own sake, but a shaping which uh, enables and facilitates that mission. But how do we understand that mission? Because if you come with different ideas of mission and say we're going to shape the church according to mission, my idea of mission, we should shape the church like this. My idea would look like that. How do we understand the mission of the church? And what I want to suggest to you today is that the eschatological vision which I've put before you must be the framework in which we understand and then implement the mission of the church. And I begin with a little verse which is, somebody asked me if I had a life verse just now, um, and I didn't actually know what a life verse was, um, but I, I discovered, and uh, I've got too many of them, I couldn't uh, possibly select, but this is, this is one of several which is hugely important for me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 58. Now, if you know Paul and if you know 1 Corinthians, you'll know that chapter 15 is a massive, great, long discussion, one of the longest single arguments anywhere in Paul, and it's all about the resurrection. And if you or I were to write a great, long discussion of the resurrection, and I, I know, actually, because I have done, um, <laughs> but 
the, the implication might be that at the end of a long discussion of the resurrection, the answer would be, therefore, lift up your heads, look forward to the great hope that is set before you, because one day you're going to get a new body, and won't that be wonderful? And it would just be a, a projection way out into the future. And, of course, that is perfectly appropriate, and Paul would celebrate that too. And, you know, he, he, is, he is looking forward to the day when um, this present body will be transformed and will thrill and rejoice at the power of God, which has enabled it to be uh, something quite new for God's new world. But that's not what he says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. He says, therefore, my beloved ones, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In the Lord your labor is not in vain. And something very interesting. Why, why does he say that at the end of a chapter on resurrection? The answer is because resurrection means that what you do in the present as work for God's kingdom is not wasted. You are not oiling the wheels of a machine which is going to drop over a cliff one day. When you feed the hungry, when you house the homeless, I was intrigued to see over the door outside a quotation from Matthew 25, and as much as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. Um, that's hugely important. When you do those kingdom-bearing activities, they may seem as though this was a random act of kindness and it's here today and gone tomorrow. But the point of 1 Corinthians 15 is none of it is wasted. And if you're a Christian artist or musician and you paint or you write a song or whatever, and if you're doing that for the Lord and for his work and for his kingdom, then it's not wasted. It's not just going off into a void somewhere. I do not know. I have absolutely no idea how God will take everything from Bach's B minor mass through to um, the, the, the work of art that a five-year-old scribbled in the Sunday school out of deep love and devotion through to one of my sermons. I have no idea how God is going to put all these into his final new creation. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 tells me that he will. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In other words... The work of the gospel, the mission of the church, the work to which we are all called in our multiple various callings as Christians is held between the resurrection of Jesus on the one hand and that final new heavens and new earth on the other hand. And the calling of the church is to implement the resurrection of Jesus and thereby to anticipate the final new creation. Let me say it again because really if you get this, you've got the whole thing. The work of the church is to implement the resurrection of Jesus and thereby to anticipate the final new creation. In other words, God began something. God launched something when Jesus came out of the tomb on Easter Day. And what was launched was new creation. And we are called to be people of new creation now in the power of the Spirit. Not to say, oh, well, we'll wait and one day we'll get there and we don't have to do much in the process. No, it's not like that. I was talking about this um, a couple of years ago at a seminar in New Orleans when uh, 
uh, just before the flood, actually. Um, and it's published now as that debate between myself and Dom Crossan with various other people joining in. And I was emphasizing this point about 1 Corinthians 15, 58. And Gary Habermas was on shortly after me. And he said, you know, I often make that point too. And I like to make the point that the very next verse, and of course there weren't any chapter divisions when Paul was writing it, the very next verse goes straight on into, um, by the way, have the cash ready. That's very interesting. It's very, very practical. You come straight from this big picture of the resurrection to now we're going to have to get on with the work, so this is going to touch you where it may be costing you. And that is part of the theology of the gospel. How are we then going to understand this within the framework of new creation? It's very, very difficult for us to get our minds around this, but let me just sketch out I've talked about one element of this, and I want to talk about two others, about the framework of new creation, space, time, and matter. I've already talked about heaven and earth as the overlapping and interlocking spheres of God's reality. We had a diocesan conference a couple of years ago, and I did some Bible readings on the parables, and I, I occasionally mentioned this about heaven and earth being overlapping and interlocking. And when and there were lots of other speakers as well, and when all the participants in the conference, there were about 500 folk there, um, had to fill in their evaluation forms at the end and say what they'd found most interesting, I was struck by the fact that several of them had said that they were really taken with this business of heaven and earth being overlapping and interlocking. So never thought of it like that before. And I realized that though I, as a theologian, am really quite used to that idea, and it's very exciting to me and has been for many years, there are many, many devout Christians who really haven't looked at life like that at all. And so when we are uh, thinking about our work for the gospel, that's one of the ways, one of the frameworks of thought within which we should do it. Because if you take Matthew 25 seriously, and Matthew 25 is a hugely important chapter, then you have to say that the ways in which we meet the living Lord Jesus in the present world are not only prayer and scripture and sacrament, but also in the faces and persons of the poor and those in need. In other words, where we are going to meet the needs that are around us in the world, working for the kingdom of God in the wider world, we find ourselves at one of those places where heaven and earth overlap and interlock. One of those places where the curtain between heaven and earth is so thin that to the eye of faith you can see right through it. So heaven and earth, space. What about time? We as Christians ought to know that in the biblical worldview, time is linear, not cyclic. There are many worldviews in Eastern religions, in Hinduism and so on, where basically time is going round and round in a big circle. And human time goes round and round in a big circle so that you're born, you live, you die, and then you come back as something else and you're born and you live and you die and so on. And in some of those philosophies, the name of the game eventually is to find the magic button which will enable you to spin off into some kind of eternal timelessness, eternal nothingness. But in the Bible, time has a beginning, a middle, and let's call it a goal rather than an end, because Revelation 21 and 22 looks as if it's the beginning of something else rather than simply an end, a kind of a brick wall. And that's very interesting in itself. But time is a funny thing in the Bible 
time not only works on a line from Genesis to Revelation, a line which climaxes with Jesus just at the, at the key moment, time also does some, some crossovers so that the past can suddenly become present again and so that the future can come forward into the present. I like the image in, uh, in the wilderness wanderings of the people of God when they send the spies ahead to the promised land and the spies bring back fruit from the promised land which they eat while they're still in the desert. This is actually one of the foundations for me of all sacramental theology, that God is going to flood creation with his love. One day the earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in the sacramental life of the church, that future comes forward to meet us in the present. Just as in the Eucharist and in baptism, the past events of Jesus' death and resurrection suddenly become present as well. Now, this may seem complete mumbo-jumbo to some people. Many Christians have just never thought of it like this. But as I've tried to wrestle with what's going on in Scripture, this is the way that I've come to say it, that we are still on that linear time, but that the present moment is always capable of intersecting with the past moment and the future moment. See, I don't actually believe that God's ultimate new world will be in that sense timeless. Time is part of God's good creation. God is counting off those days in Genesis chapter 1 and saying that's good and the next one's good and the next one's good and we get to the end and it's very good. And is God then going to say that time itself is bad? That's basically a platonic idea. I know there's huge debates about this. Some of you will know philosophical debates, theological debates. There's a kind of a sliding scale between people who take the position I take or even stronger and those who say, no, there will ultimately be a timeless state. I think time will probably be transformed in the new world in ways that we don't currently understand. We have glimpses of it by the use of our memory, which brings past events back into the present, and by the use of our imagination, which brings future events forward to us. Maybe both of those will be enhanced in the new creation, I don't know. But my point is this, when we're thinking about the mission of the church, what happens again and again is that the events in the past are worked out in the present, particularly the events of Jesus dying and rising, so that Paul talks about his mission and the life of the church in terms of bearing about in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be made manifest in our mortal bodies. That's 2 Corinthians 4. The past events are coming forward into the present so that when we are living out the mission of God, we shouldn't be surprised to find that we are called to bear the cross and that when we bear the cross, we shouldn't be surprised to find that we come through and have moments of resurrection. This is what life ought to be like because those events weren't just one-off things in the past. They are one-off things in the past on the linear time, but they come forward and inform the reality of who we are in the present. And by the same token, future events, God's new world, the time when justice will be done at last, when peace and joy will flood God's world. We don't have to wait for the future. We can anticipate those in the present. And when you work for justice and peace in God's world, that's what you're doing, anticipating the future on the basis of God's achievement in Christ. I'll say more about that in a minute in relation to ecology. Because then when we think about matter, space and time, when we think about matter, we have to say, 
with Gerard Manley Hopkins, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. Here you are sitting, looking at it. A wonderful blue sky behind a wonderful mountain scene, and I wish we could fast forward and see all the vegetation coming out and so on, but uh, you will, those of you who are here will enjoy that in the weeks to come. And again and again, if we know what we're about, whether we're gazing at the starry heavens or looking at a tiny flower, if we allow ourselves to stop and think, this isn't romanticism. This is a way of saying with that hymn, this is my father's world. In the rustling grass I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. You know, that, that, that can collapse into a kind of nature mysticism, but that's not what I'm talking about. It's a way of honoring the fact, as the seraphim sang in Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory. Present tense. And then, as I was saying the other night, um, in Isaiah 11, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We live between the present paradoxical filling of the earth with God's glory and the future filling to overflowing, filling to bursting with God's glory. And that means that all of matter, all material, has something sacred about it. Not that we should worship it as though we were pagans or pantheists or polytheists, but that the matter of this world is a vessel designed to be filled with the love of God. So that when, well, suppose you're working as a craftsman with, with wood or stone or whatever it is, I'm not at all suggesting that you divinize that, far from it, but rather that you recognize that this is part of God's good creation and you are privileged to handle it and work with it and help creation be more fully itself because God designed human beings to work with creation in order that the garden should flourish, literally and metaphorically. And so this eschatological vision of space, of heaven and earth coming together, of time, of a future in which present and past are somehow summed up and transcended, and of matter, the world, the earth, the cosmos, flooded to overflowing with the love of God. This vision must inform who we are and what we do in the present. And, of course, the central task of the church is worship. Worship. For many Christians, and I think for myself, for much of my early life as a Christian, worship was kind of the thing you did on Sunday, uh, the, the, the thing on the side. Yeah, having done everything else that you were doing as a Christian, uh, whether it was Bible study or telling your friends about Jesus or whatever it was, then you went to church on a Sunday and you sang some hymns and that was worship. And it's taken me a long, slow process to realize that actually bowing down before the one in whose image I'm made is the most ennobling and humbling and fully human thing that one can do because one of the great laws of the spiritual life is that you become like what you worship that's a scary thought when you think of all the different gods and goddesses that are worshipped in our world including alas by those of us who are Christians and who keep little bits of idolatry around the edge somewhere just to keep us you know, one foot in the other camp in case. We don't intend to, but that's often how it works out. And we come back again and again to hear God's word, to sing his praise, to meet at his table with the breaking of the bread in order to be folded back again into the great story of Jesus and of God's future, to be brought back again to the place where the curtain between heaven and earth is almost transparent 
and to be brought to the place where, fleetingly, the world is freshly charged with the grandeur of God in the symbols of bread and wine and so on. And as we do that, as we worship, we are thereby equipped for mission. You cannot do kingdom mission unless you are a worshipping community, unless you are a worshipping Christian within a community. If you try, you'll fall flat on your face because you will be doing it in your own strength and by your own agendas. And it is in shared worship, in word and sacrament and preaching and song and all the rest of it, where the church is subtly but gradually redefined and shaped and transformed into being the community that can then do the mission that it should. So we have to conceive of our worship within that eschatological framework. One of the delights of um, the modern ecumenical movement is that many of us have enjoyed reading some of the works of the Eastern Orthodox theologians, people like the late great Alexander Schmemann, whose writings on the sacramental quality of the universe and on the Eucharist in particular are deeply eschatological, that what we do in our worship is an anticipation of that time when the earth shall be full of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And so worship must be flooded with that sense of eschatological possibility and future hope. Gathering up the whole story of the Old Testament. You know, when you, when you read the Bible in a worship service, when you read it out loud, uh, some churches, alas, including some in my own tradition, have scrunched that down so that it simply becomes a reading of the few verses that the preacher is going to be preaching on. That's not the point. Do that as well if you like. But the reason we read scripture in worship is to read good large chunks of Old Testament and New Testament because we are telling the great story to the glory of God. That is part of worship. It is only secondarily to remind the congregation of this bit or that bit of these books or stories. The purpose is to live again within the great story and to honor God in doing so and to be ourselves shaped by that narrative. And then out of that, of course, the preaching may and usually will flow. And this will generate an eschatologically shaped discipleship, a discipleship of prayer, of Eucharist, of scripture, of holiness. This is on the way to mission. Mission is the aim and the goal. Worship and mission is, is the rhythm of the Christian life. But those who are energized by worship for mission will be energized in these disciplines of prayer and Eucharist and scripture and holiness. And each of them, when you think of them eschatologically, appears quite different. For many Christians still, prayer is shouting across a void, hoping that God's out there somewhere and will listen. Well, better to shout than to stay silent, but better to have a biblical worldview in which heaven and earth overlap, in which past and present and future relate like I've said. So that we're neither just shouting across a void, nor just indulging in a bit of, of mysticism of getting in touch with the rhythms of the world or whatever. Some people think of prayer in that pantheistic way. The chapter on prayer in my book, Simply Christian, explains a bit more what I mean at this point. Rather, we are living at the overlap, the overlap of heaven and earth and the overlap of the times. And that is precisely why in one of the most profound biblical passages about prayer, Paul talks in Romans 8 of the, the, the whole creation groaning, and then we ourselves groaning in travel as we await our adoption as God's children, the redemption of our bodies, and then speaks within that of the Holy Spirit groaning within us. 
And I've often said it, but it bears repetition. Do you see what's happening in that multiple picture? Here is this great picture of the new creation, of the whole creation being set free from its bondage to decay. And we Christians think, yes, that's wonderful, and that's our hope, and that's where we're going. And then we're tempted to think, so we're the ones that have got it all right, and the world out there that doesn't know about this hope, well, poor things, they've, they're all muddled and misguided. That's not Paul's picture. The church itself is groaning in travail, waiting for our adoption as children. Because we are called to be God's people in prayer at the place where the world is in pain. And when I think about the struggles in the Anglican communion at the moment, and when I think about the parallel struggles in most other denominations that I know about, whether they're on the same issue or not, we're all living with the convulsion of the transformation of the times, of the overlap of modernity and postmodernity, of the, all the struggles culturally, sociologically, politically. And it's not surprising to me that the church is not sitting on the side looking at the rest of the world saying, well, you poor people are in a mess, but of course we're all right. The church is called to be there at the place of pain. Don't be surprised when it's painful. The reason we feel that pain, though, is not to wallow in it and not to give in to the pressures of the world and not to say, oh, well, let's just go with the flow and do whatever comes in our culture today. No, the, 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 the name of the game is to hold on to that pain in the presence of God. But then the thing is, where is God in that process? Is God sitting upstairs a long way away saying, wish you guys could get your act together? No. God the Holy Spirit is groaning within us with inarticulate groanings because the reason we are called to be the people in prayer at the place where the world is in pain is so that God will be present at the place where the world is in pain by his spirit groaning within us. And you can only understand that if you understand this eschatology of present and future, and of being caught in the, in the overlap of the ages, in the overlap of the spheres, in the, in the overlap of the material universe with what it is yet to be. Prayer is a struggle with God in the power of the Spirit. Prayer for the church, prayer for the world. Prayer is one of those mysterious things, mysterious moments, where actually, if we know what we're about, we live this eschatology, uh, uh, on our knees and in our hearts. The Eucharist, likewise, I've spoken a bit about that, and I, I, the way that I've come to see what happens in the Eucharist, and I think this comes round the back of a lot of the ecumenical muddle and puzzle that there's been between different theories of what, what's going on in the Eucharist, is to see it in terms of that inaugurated eschatology, that future coming into the present, that brief moment when the curtain is torn back, and that moment when the world which is already charged with God's grandeur, is filled afresh with it in anticipation of what is to come in the future. And likewise, when we read Scripture, and, and you know, it seems you, you can't be... Somebody asked me the other day in an interview, uh, what does reading Scripture mean to you? And I said, you know, I'm sorry, I don't want to be trite, but that's like asking me, what does breathing mean to me? You know, it's, it's kind of something I do, and I don't want to try doing without doing it, um, because I think I would collapse and die. I mean, I actually... Again, I don't want to sound glib. I really don't know what it would be like not to read Scripture for a week or a month. You know, if I'm sick or whatever, I may miss the odd day. It's not much fun doing that, but 
Uh, I just don't know what that would be like. But, so I assume that as part of a Christian discipline. But the trouble is that some people, when they read Scripture, they simply read it as a devotional thing. This is my little fix for the day, my bit of spirituality to get me up and running. And others, they read it more, um, I'm going to study the history, I'm going to analyze this text, I'm going to do a, a fairly strong head job on it all. Um, but actually, Scripture itself is the book in which Jesus is strangely present. Again, this is something the Eastern Orthodox Church has never forgotten, though we in the West, uh, really, we often see Scripture as a book uh, about Jesus or partly about Jesus. But there is this sense, and in the, the Catholic tradition, in the Orthodox tradition, when the Gospel book is brought in, in, in to be read in the Eucharist, there is a sense that this is a symbol, an icon of the presence of Jesus where two or three are gathered together. So that when you read the Gospels, when you read the Gospels prayerfully and wisely and in the context of worship, you are actually doing something which embodies, the, and I mean that word quite seriously, the living presence of Jesus, challenging us to love him and embrace him with mind and heart. There is a new wrinkle in some parts of reformed Anglicanism at the moment, which I find very worrying, but I've heard it in various quarters, where people I've heard saying, um, that we shouldn't actually honor the Gospels in this way in the Eucharist because the Gospel, how you get saved, is what we find in Paul, in Romans and Galatians and so on. And the Gospels simply give us the stories of Jesus, which is the kind of backup to that. that, that I think that's a major mistake and actually a dishonoring of the inspired Scripture. But the Protestant tradition has not been very good at how to read the Gospels, actually throughout the 400 years of Protestant history, we have to see the Gospels as what they are, these strange, beautiful, powerful narratives in which the living Christ is truly present, waiting to be heard and loved. And then, likewise, the challenge to holiness. And again, the final chapter of Simply Christian has quite a bit about this. Um, so many Christians think that Christian holiness is simply a matter of learning the rules and then getting on trying to obey them, realizing that we fail, confessing our sin, having another go, etc. Well, that's important too. Uh, that, that's not to be sneezed at. But a lot of others think of holiness simply in terms of self-fulfillment, finding out who I truly am and then living out that life as best, as best I can. It's, it's neither of those things, and it transcends both. Christian holiness being formed into the people who can authentically take forward the mission of God, it's not an end in itself. Christian holiness is the way to being part of God's kingdom movement in the world. Christian holiness is a matter of living at the overlap of heaven and earth. That's scary, but if you believe in the Holy Spirit, that is precisely what we're talking about that in every single man, woman, and child who belongs to Jesus Christ by baptism and faith, the Holy Spirit is present. And that means that that person is in him or herself a place where heaven and earth meet. We don't usually think like that in church. If we did, we might treat one another in a slightly different way from time to time. But all of these, prayer, Eucharist, Scripture, holiness, each of them you see shaped by the resurrection, and by the eschatology of which I've spoken, is designed to generate and sustain eschatologically shaped mission. The gospel message is that Jesus Christ is Lord and that at his name every knee shall 
bow, and we live in between that is and that shall, and our calling is so to declare the first that the second is anticipated. So to declare and live the lordship of Jesus that at his name every knee bows. Now, that means that the individual hearing about Jesus is summoned to repentance and faith. That is the direct result of the gospel in the heart and life and attitude and, and, and action of an individual who hears it. But it also means that that same gospel message is designed to result in the people who ruin this world with their grand schemes of self-aggrandizement, whether it's Alexander the Great or whether it's modern empires or whatever, in those people coming face to face with the Jesus who is their Lord, at whose name every knee, including theirs, will bow, and having to discover in the structures of their work what that will mean. So the gospel message, as it goes out, itself embodies that overlap of heaven and earth, itself embodies that coming together of future with the present, that truth which is already one in Jesus and which then will be uh, celebrated one day um, when, when, he, when God makes all in all, when God will be all in all, when God makes the new heavens and new earth. I want to take you to three passages of Scripture which have helped me as I've reflected on this, just to show you a bit about how I think it works out. Um, somebody asked me, as I said, about my favorite verses. Um, one of the tricks I play when I interview clergy for parochial appointments is I say to them, if you had to go to a desert island and you were allowed to take two chapters of Scripture with you, which would they be? And it's actually quite a hard uh, thing to think through, but um, if it was up to me, um, well, I might want um, some bit of Isaiah, but it would probably end up being Romans 8 and John 20. I've told you quite a bit about Romans 8 so far today. It is one of the all-time great chapters in Scripture. Let me tell you a little bit about John 20, and this is contained in some of my books, and those of you who've read what I've written won't be surprised to see it. By the way, somebody asked me, um, this material that I'm giving you today, is there one of my books where you can just go and find it all written out? And the answer is no, God willing it will find its way into one before too long but since clearly all this is going to be on the web anyway there you are you can you can listen to it john chapter 20 begins very early in the morning on the first day of the week and then 19 verses later the evening of that day the first day of the week now i read a piece um, a while back about one of Shakespeare's late plays and the, the author said by this time Shakespeare did nothing by accident in other words when you find hidden subtle meanings chances are Shakespeare really did put that there you're not just making it up and I want to say by this time John is doing nothing by accident and when he tells you twice that this is the first day of the week you better listen because John's gospel has begun with something which is such an act of chutzpah that you wonder that he even allowed himself to do it. How does the Bible begin? In the beginning. How does John's gospel begin? In the beginning. This is a new genesis. This is about creation and then tremblingly new creation. And so we watch as the signs unfold, the signs of God's glory. And there are seven of them, of course, there would be. And the sevenfold pattern works its way out. And what happens on the sixth day of the week in John's Gospel, the Friday? 
What happens on the sixth day of creation? God creates humankind in his own image. Here is this one who reflects who I truly am. And on the Friday in John's Gospel, in chapters 18 and 19, Jesus is brought out before the crowds and Pilate says, Behold the man. And if we knew our business, we would say, Yes, this is where creation comes to. Jesus wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Jesus going to the cross. And what does he say on the cross, his last word in John? It is accomplished, just as God finished all the work that he had begun. And what does he do on the seventh day? On the seventh day, he rests, because that's what God does at the end of creation. On the Saturday, Jesus rests in the tomb. And then, very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and the whole thing starts. And if we knew what we were about, we wouldn't just say, oh, that's fine, you know, this is Easter day, so it's chocolate eggs and Easter bunnies and all the fun of the fair. We would say, this is new creation. This is the beginning. This is the first day of the new week. And then we'd say, well, well, so what? What are we supposed to do about it? And the answer to Mary Magdalene is, dry your tears and go and tell people. That's for starters. But then in the evening of that day, the first day of the week, Jesus comes and stands in the midst of the disciples. Peace be with you. This new week is a week of shalom, of restoration, of wholeness, of fulfillment. And then he breathes on the disciples, Genesis 2, God breathed into human nostrils the breath of life, and they became living beings. He breathes on the disciples, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. As the Father sent me, so I send you. And I have to tell you that 25 years ago, when I started doing serious historical Jesus research, Several people said to me, and it was a message that I found in my own worried heart and mind, that if you make Jesus a credible figure in the first century AD, you risk making him remote from us today so that we can admire him as a distant, interesting figure, but he won't be a living reality for us anymore. And that's often been the danger with historical Jesus scholarship. And for some years, I struggled with the fact that I was finding more and more and more about what it meant actually to be Jesus in the first century, the real historical Jesus. I've written a lot about that, as many of you know. Before I could figure out how one got from there to here, as it were. And I understood the pressure that many people said, don't go the historical Jesus route because you make Jesus inaccessible and he doesn't relate to us anymore. I understood that. And then one day... I understood John 20, verses 19 following. As the Father sent me, so I send you. Works like this. As Jesus to Israel, so the church to the world. What Jesus was doing in and for this microcosm, the Jewish people, challenging them with the message of the kingdom, living out their traditions but transforming them in the process, fulfilling their hopes but turning them upside down and inside out as he did so, dying as the king of the Jews and rising again to launch the age-old Jewish expectation of new heavens and new earth. Jesus summing up 
all that Israel wanted to be, but doing it in a way that she never imagined. That is what the church has to be within the wider world. Listening to its stories, understanding its life, its aspirations, its problems, its puzzles. And then in the power of the Spirit, learning how to live the kingdom of God in and for that world. As the Father sent me, so I send you. And it's a challenge that I've tried to work out in various ways and various places to go back through the Gospels and say, what would it mean to be the people for the world based on who Jesus was for Israel? And the more you see that, the more you'll realize it's quite a task. The more you'll say with Paul, who is sufficient for these things? And that is why every time the New Testament gives you this challenge, it also says, you will be given the Holy Spirit to enable you to do it, because you can't do it by yourself. Receive the Holy Spirit, as the Father sent me, so I send you. That has been enormously important for my own understanding then, really, as to how to do the hermeneutics of historical Jesus study, but also as the ground plan for the mission of the church in the world. Because Jesus' mission in Israel was the mission of the kingdom of God, And the kingdom of God is not simply about sending people to heaven so that they'll be all right after all. The mission of the kingdom of God is claiming this world as the sphere over which God is sovereign. So that when we see Jesus going around, healing, multiplying loaves, walking on water, we're not just seeing him doing bizarre miracles to show how clever he is or how divine he is or anything like that. We are seeing the sudden, sharply focused inbreaking of the sovereignty of God over creation. When I preach about this, especially to young people, I sometimes like to say, look at it like this. Supposing we were to say, of any organization or institution, what would it look like if God was running this show? And then supposing we were to say it of this county, of this state, of this country of the Western world, of the whole... What would it look like if God was running this show? Think about that. What would happen? What would be different? And then realize that when Jesus came and said, the kingdom of God is at hand, and when he said, the kingdom of God is like this, a sower went out to sow seed, and when he said, the kingdom of God is like this, and here he is having a party with his friends, this is exactly what he's saying. This is what it looks like when God is running this show. It's what kingdom of God is all about. And I say that's not reducible to terms of this individual or that, getting religion, getting faith, coming to Jesus, being saved. That matters. That is focal. Because every time that happens, that's another person signed on to be an agent of God's kingdom. You know, I have two grandchildren who are both under the age of two. And I pray for them. I try to pray for them every day. And I, I thought to begin with, I was going to pray that they would come to know Jesus for themselves. And I do pray that. But I find myself more and more praying that God will call them in Christ to be agents of his kingdom. In whatever way is going to be appropriate. Because that will entail their faith their belief, their born-againness, their holiness. But it won't stop there. It will be about who they will be in the world. Maybe one day one of them will log on to some website and find me saying that. Well, Joseph and Ella, if you ever do, God bless you, and I hope you're getting on with it. (laughs) And then we find the same, not just at the end of John, but at the end of Matthew. I spoke of this before. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth 
has been given to me. That means that Jesus is the rightful ruler of this state, of this country, of my country, of the whole world. He has all authority. That's not a future thing, that's a present claim. And the challenge to Christian political theology, which we've been terribly bad at the last 200 years, because the Enlightenment wanted to pretend that there could be no such thing as Christian political theology, wanted to pretend that being religious was a matter of having an upstairs relationship with God, and then you left that behind and you came downstairs and you ran the world as though God was somewhere else. Religion was what the individual did with his or her solitude, usually his in those days. And no... The challenge to Christian political theology is to say, what does it mean to say that Jesus is the Lord of the world now? How does that work out? And in the early church, there were those, as Henry Chadwick said in his famous book on the early church, the church divided between those who wanted to rule the world and those who wanted to renounce it. The would-be Christian emperors and the monastic movement. And they neither of them got it right. The one was, was avoiding the real challenge one way, and one was avoiding the real challenge the other way. I'm not knocking them. They were wrestling with real issues, which we have sidelined, actually. It's a question which occurs in my country the whole time, because, as you heard, we bishops are actually in the House of Lords. We're part of Parliament. And there are some people who resent that and say we should boot the bishops out because we're a secular country now. We don't want religion on the public square. But as we come round the corner from secular modernity into post-modernity, a lot of people are saying, actually, no, we do want to hear religious voices. They're important. Religion matters. The fact that we ruled religion out of court led to 9-11 and lots of other stuff because we weren't taking that um, into our thinking, factoring that into our equation. What does it mean that Jesus is now the Lord of earth as well as heaven? How does that work out? People are so afraid of theocracy, of a regime that says we have a hotline to God, therefore we are unassailable, therefore we can do whatever we like, and you just have to take it because this is God's will. But actually, by not going the Christian political theology route, we in the West have done that anyway, because we've said vox populi, vox dei, so that as long as people have voted, however you count the votes and however that works out, then the people who've been voted into office have an absolute mandate to do whatever they like. Certainly how it works in my country. And the debates that we're having in England at the moment are about whether the House of Lords, who isn't, which isn't an elected body, has any legitimacy or not, because people haven't voted for them. And then other people are coming back and saying, well, voting's a bit odd, because actually, in our country, the government is elected by about 35% of the people, and then the government proceeds to do lots of things that weren't in their manifesto. So just what are we talking about? And it's time we did business again with a Christian political theology as part of our mission. Because the kingdom of God is about the sovereignty of God over all human society. And as I say, people, because they're frightened of theocracy, they back off from that. But if you back off, you leave a vacuum, and other things equally ambiguous and dangerous come in to take their place. As the ancient Athenians knew, democracies can get it badly wrong horribly wrong. I don't want to live in a non-democratic society. I want to make our democracy work in a more Christian and appropriate way. Jesus is sovereign. How does that work out? And then the third passage I was going to take you to is the whole book of Acts. If you look at my website, there's a piece I, I, uh, I gave on Acts as, um, as an address at the Anglican Consultative Council nearly two years ago now, meeting in Nottingham. And that was a Bible reading really addressed to the Anglican Communion on the basis of the book of Acts. I just want to draw attention to one or two features there. At the beginning of Acts, you have the ascension. We all know that. 
Jesus is exalted. But anyone in the Roman world hearing of somebody being exalted like that would know perfectly well what this means. This person is not now taken out of the equation, gone off somewhere irrelevant. This person is now exalted to a place of divine sovereignty and honor. And to have a book which begins with Jesus being exalted and which ends with somebody in Rome announcing the kingdom of God and the lordship of Jesus openly and unhindered is a deeply political statement, often ignored when people read Acts. The first half of the book of Acts, Acts 1 to 12, is basically about Jesus being announced as the Messiah of Israel by his followers, and the present rulers of Israel don't like it, and ultimately the Herod of that, of that day in Acts 12 uh, exalts himself and pretends that he is divine and comes a cropper and dies, is eaten by worms, it says, and dies. And interestingly, there's a parallel passage to that in Josephus. This isn't just Luke making up a funny story about it. This really, he does seem to have collapsed just after um, a great act of self-aggrandizement. But Jesus, and the word about Jesus, goes on and triumphs and flourishes. And then the second half of the book of Acts is about Jesus being announced as Lord in the wider pagan world, according to that Statement in Acts chapter 1, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And again and again, Jesus' witnesses, the apostles, come up against the fact that someone else thinks he's the Lord of the world. In Acts 17, the, disciples are put on, the apostles are put on trial for saying that there is another king, namely Jesus, another in addition to whom? Well, Caesar, of course. That's the problem. They are saying that Jesus is Lord and so they are relativizing Caesar. So they get into trouble. And the story of Acts is how that trouble works out. Until we land up, as I said, in Rome. But notice what happens again. This is not most people's picture of a theocracy. The church marching in and taking control. Because the means by which the church engages in this mission to the world is the means articulated by Paul in 2 Corinthians, which is the means which is rooted in the fact of Jesus and his death and resurrection. The means is that of humble, self-giving service, not of arrogant lording it over people. The means which has turned the whole thing upside down. You see this wonderfully, extraordinarily, in John chapters 18 and 19, when Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate. You see it um, uh, in, in that dialogue he has about truth and power with Pilate. And you see it particularly in that amazing passage at the end of Mark 10, which many Christians only snatch one verse from and they forget the rest. You know, the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And people say, there you are, Daniel 7, Isaiah 53, Mark 10, 45, that's our atonement theology. And they forget that the whole passage is important. The passage begins with James and John assuming that the way to do Christian mission is by muscling in, taking over, giving yourself the best seats in the kingdom and running things as though you are doing what the world does with power. Lord, we want to sit at your right and your left when you come in your kingly power. And Jesus says, you actually don't know what you're asking for. And they don't. And four chapters later, we discover what he means, five chapters later, as two brigands are crucified, one at his right and one at his left, as he comes in his kingly power. And then Jesus takes the disciples aside and says something which resonates out into the whole 
calling of the church to mission, to be for the world what Jesus was for Israel. He says, listen, the rulers of the nations do it one way. They lord it over their subjects. Their great ones exercise dominion over them. It's not going to be like that with you. With you, anyone who wants to be great must be your servant. Anyone who wants to be the first must be the slave of all. Because the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There is the agenda for the how of Christian mission, which deconstructs any attempted Christian imperialism. We're Christians, so we're just going to run the world the way we want to. And says, no, if you really know your business as Christians, if you really are living at this overlap of heaven and earth, anticipating God's future, you do so under the sign of the cross and with the means of humble service. As the Father sent me, so I send you. My watch has gone far faster than I thought it was going. Let me wind up and then we'll have time for just 20 minutes or so of questions. As we do all of this, we are claiming to stand at that overlap of heaven and earth, of present and future, of the material universe that is with the material universe that will be. And as we do this in our work, whether in music or in medicine, whether in politics or in painting, whatever it is, whether even in running a church and preaching the gospel, what we are doing is not building the kingdom we are building for the kingdom. The old social gospel thought, well, Jesus did what he did, gave some great teaching, now we have to build the kingdom. We just get on brick by brick. We, we're building the kingdom of God by our own efforts, it seems. No, that's not how it is. The final kingdom will always remain a fresh, massive act of grace and new creation. But what we can do, and this is back where I started in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, is we can build for the kingdom. We can build for the kingdom. Look at it like this. Those great ancient medieval cathedrals, some of which I've been privileged to work and serve in. Many of them were built, were designed by architects who would never live to see the fulfillment of their uh, great scheme. Many of them were worked on by craftsmen who would work their whole life long, from apprenticeship right to the day they died, on part of that cathedral and would never see it complete. They just knew that their task was to get on with this stone, to be carved this way, because that's what they've been told, and then to fit it together with this one, carved that way. That's what they've been told. They mightn't even know how this would all fit into the system. They would trust the ultimate architect that what they were doing would not be wasted, would not be lost. That is the humility of Christian service and mission. I have no idea how what I do, how what you do, will fit into the eventual grand design that God has. But be assured that it will fit, and that in the Lord it will not be in vain. That is how I get from resurrection to the task of the church. And we now have a quarter of an hour for questions. I'm sorry I've gone on longer than I imagined. These are quick um, airplane questions. You know, sitting next to someone on the airplane, you get two minutes to talk to them. Okay, here we go. Is there a hell who goes there, all non-believers? Is there a hell who goes there? 
a hell. I like that. I don't like it, but um, I, I'm always rather sad that somebody asks this because somebody always does, but I perhaps should have said something. But I did talk about the fact that I really do believe that as humans we become like what we worship and that we are given the freedom to choose to worship that which is not God. If you persist in worshiping that which is not God and allowing your humanness to be shaped thus, you are colluding at your own dehumanization. You're saying, I don't actually want to be a human made in God's image. I want to be something else. I want to be in the image of money, of sex, of power, or whatever other gods, goddesses there may be out there. And gradually, your humanness can deconstruct. And it seems to me when somebody persistently chooses to do that and forms and patterns their life accordingly, then after death, they are given the result of their choice, which is to be an ex-human being. That is the way that I can understand the traditional language about hell. Much of the traditional language about hell comes to us from the Middle Ages, where all sorts of lurid speculations grew up, and where, notice, the vision of God's new heavens and new earth had receded, so that you just get in the Sistine Chapel or Dante or whatever, heaven at one end, hell at the other, and resurrection doesn't fit very comfortably with that. The renewal of creation doesn't fit very comfortably with that. So we need to be a little bit careful about saying, yep, there's a hell, and then just colluding with this uh, Sistine Chapel-type antithesis of heaven and hell, because really new creation is where it's at. But the point about that self-dehumanization is that it seems to me, I may be wrong, but it seems to me that if that happens, that person who ceases to be a genuine person at that point passes beyond pity at the moment that they pass beyond hope. The problem with the, tra the classic doctrine of hell is, of course, that who wants to live in a beautiful countryside with a huge concentration camp where people are being tortured right in the middle of it? And some traditional pictures of hell leave you with that. And people have rightly, in my view, reacted against that and said, how could I possibly um, go along with that? Especially when there are people that I know and love who are there, or have known and have loved. It seems to me that though there is a sorrow about somebody ceasing to be genuinely human, there is also a sense that they have at that moment passed beyond pity as well as beyond hope. That's the only way I can do it. I'm not a universalist. I don't see how, granted the New Testament, one could actually be a universalist. But I do actually also believe that when God finally renews all things, there will be all sorts of good surprises as well as perhaps some bad ones. Look at it like this. The Second Temple Jews, who were longing for the Messiah to come, had a very clear picture of what would happen when he did. And when old Simeon in the temple said, This is it, Lord, now let us thou thy servant depart in peace. Here is the Messiah at last. I'm sure he had quite a clear agenda. This child would grow up and defeat the Romans and cleanse the land and get all Israel to follow Torah. Didn't work out that way. And the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, We had hoped that he would redeem Israel, but he didn't. He went and died on a cross. And Jesus says, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the Lord had promised. This was how it had to be. And I suspect that when we get to the new heavens and the new earth, we will say, well, I never. So it's like this. And then we will say, but of course this was how it had to be. I really think there may be surprises in store for us as well. Yeah, next one. Number two. What did you learn from C.S. Lewis? You speak of him often. Oh, 
I read all the C.S. Lewis I could get my hands on when I was in my middle and late teens, and I absolutely devoured him, wolfed him down, and some of the books I read several times, and some I've got passages which still are quite clear in my memory, though I can never remember which book they come from, and when I want to quote them, I have to uh, uh, write to Walter Hooper, who was Lewis's secretary, who still lives in Oxford, and say, Walter, where does this come from? And back it comes, you know, surprised by joy, second edition, page 280, whatever it is. Um, He's just got this encyclopedic. But um, I don't agree with Lewis all down the line, there's one of the screw tape letters which completely rubbishes the quest of the historical Jesus and I understand why Lewis went there but it's not a good place to be in my view and some of what he says in in other respects I wrote an article about him in the magazine Touchstone uh, just recently there's a link to the article from from my website and I salute Lewis as as an amazing apologist but sometimes he got away with murder you know one of his friends said that when he was in debate um, using the old image of people firing old-fashioned pistols. Said he said he was, Lewis was always very handy with the blunt end if the argument misfired. Um, uh, uh, and he, he, he was, a, he was a, great, a great rhetorician, and sometimes his rhetoric carried him away. Of course, that would never happen to me. So that, yeah. Okay. Is Jesus the only way to God? Or... Are there other ways for those in other religions? Yeah, this is too big a question to handle just straight off the top like that. But um, uh, Jesus said in John's Gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Um, The question has often been raised in this last century particularly whether some of those who really do seem to have a living relationship with a God that really does seem to be very like the God we know in Christ but who have actually never heard of Jesus may have an access, as it were, through Jesus by some anonymous route. Karl Rahner discussed that. And I've not been a missionary in kind of virgin territory, but people who have been missionaries where in lands where Christ has never been named regularly have reported the phenomenon that when they talk to people who've never heard of Jesus about the gospel of Jesus, some people are shocked and surprised and cross, but some people say, you know, I always thought something like that must be true. And I, I merely report that. I haven't experienced that myself. But that is a phenomenon which missionaries have regularly discovered. So that it does seem to be the case that there are some people, not, it's not the case that everybody all the time, etc. There are some people who genuinely have been feeling after and perhaps even finding the God who we know in Jesus Christ. And that's said in Acts 14 and Acts 17, pretty much like that. And the Cornelius episode as well, of course, in Acts 10 and 11. But the trouble with our contemporary world is, of course, that people have taken those hints and guesses and have said, well, that's all right, then the Buddhists are saved by being good Buddhists, the Muslims are saved by being good Muslims or whatever. And then you have to say, well, actually, look at what they mean by salvation. Look at what they mean by God. Well, Buddhists don't really mean anything by God. Um, look at, at what they, what, how their worldview works and at the life that it generates and then see there are some serious and radical differences. But God is God and God is great and God can do all sorts of things that we don't imagine. So that I don't want to say that we've got God imprisoned in our churches and that God can and must only work through our churches and we'll be jolly cross with him if he does anything else. So you have to say really, you have to go in two directions at once on this and there's a proper humility while having also a proper confidence in Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. And somehow we in the Western churches have got to learn both of those things at the same time, and we're not terribly good about either of them. So we tend to land land up with a bit of a fudgy mess in the middle, which is not happy either. So, tough one. 
If the Bible seems to tolerate slavery and sexism, can we trust it on sexuality? Okay. Um, the, it depends what we mean by tolerate. To, the word tolerate is, a, is, is basically an 18th century word, which is, which is um, not a very happy way into anything specifically Christian. Um, to, because to, toleration, you know, I can tolerate you the other side of the street. I'm not engaged. To, tolerance is a kind of a cheap, low-grade parody of love. Um, and to, to, tolerance is, is not a great virtue to aspire to. Love is much tougher and harder. You have to engage with someone. You have to discover who they really are. You have to figure out what it might be to live in the same room as this person or in a relationship with them. Um, tolerance just allows things to fall apart. But, but um, So slavery, the Bible does and doesn't tolerate slavery. The Bible contains a great story from beginning to end which has as some of its key moments in the story a message about a God who sets slaves free. The book of Exodus is all about that. Israel goes back to it again and again. The Psalms look back to that moment when God freed the slaves. And that isn't just one odd thing that God happened to do. It's a formative narrative. And the Jews instantiated it every year at Passover and some of their other festivals as well. They celebrated their existence as the freed slave people. That runs all the way through. And then when Jesus comes and dies under the weight and slavery of sin and is liberated from that on Easter Day, then Paul and other writers say, actually, this is the great moment of redemption. And redemption has as one of its metaphorical meanings somebody buying a slave in the slave market in order to set that slave free. So the, the idea of slaves being set, set free is woven deep into the narrative point after point. So when then you get Paul saying, slaves obey your masters, um, in Ephesians or Colossians or whatever, does this mean he's colluding with slavery? No. I'll tell you what it's like. You know, in 300 years from now, if there is still a world 300 years from now, God help us, people will look back on this period in history and say, you know, those Europeans and Americans, they knew perfectly well that driving those tin cans around with all that petrol being pumped out into the atmosphere was polluting the world and was running the risk of actually uh, uh, allowing the world to have terrible things happen to it. And they went on doing it. And we've searched, we've ransacked the websites and the Church of the Holy Spirit and everywhere else, and we cannot find any sermons of people people telling you you should give up using cars. And people will say, didn't they know this was terrible? Didn't they know they were polluting it? In the same way, we look back and we say, why weren't you guys in the first century preaching against slavery? That's what slavery was to them like cars are to us. It's just part of the way the world works. And we may know that we do some bad things as a result, but we haven't got the guts actually to challenge it. Now, Paul did challenge it in the letter to Philemon, he put down a time bomb beside the institution which said, actually, Onesimus is a brother in Christ. He's a human being. Wow, that's different. Took a long time to work out. But this year is the 200th anniversary of Wilberforce's abolition of the slave trade in, in, in England. We're celebrating that. Um, so when people say, as they do, oh, well, slavery, sexism, etc., the Bible's full of that, therefore we don't need to believe it on other issues either. It, it won't actually do, because when you look at the grand narrative about male and female, as I said, from Genesis right through to Revelation, this isn't just one or two arbitrary rules about how to behave with bits of your body. This is about something woven into the deep structure of what it means to be created in the image of God, what it means to be citizens of this God-given world. And until we learn to see ethics in that way, we haven't actually got to first base.
Time for one more. Okay. There are a lot of good ones left. Okay, but here we go. Um, you spoke earlier of hope, and while we are people of hope and believe in the care and sovereignty of God, if you were the Archbishop of Canterbury, what would you do to guard the faith once delivered to the saints and protect these little ones from false teaching on the left or the right? Far be it for me to say what Rowan Williams ought to do. Um, the first thing to do is to pray. The second thing to do is to listen to everybody, realizing that there are many, many voices and that many of those voices have grains of truth which must not be lost. It's all too easy to foreclose and to say, because I know that this lot is basically right and that lot's basically wrong, we can discount everything this lot is saying. And I think that's what Rowan is doing. He's listening very carefully, but again and again and again in prayer and listening to go back deeper and deeper and deeper into Scripture and into the Christian tradition and to come back and say, this is actually where we are and how it is. Um, and that is a long-term project. As I said before, we are very keen on short-term fixes. We'd like to get this one solved. We'd like a new structure which will just do the business. It's not going to be like that. There have been some crises in church history before which have taken a century to resolve. If you know anything about church history, think of the 4th and 5th centuries and some of the massive doctrinal controversies, the Arian controversy. That went on a long time. Jolly uncomfortable while that was going on. Or think of Augustine and battling with the Donatists and the Pelagians. This stuff will go on. We won't just be able to, to find a way of, of doing it overnight. And if you think you've found that sort of a solution, the chances are you've radically oversimplified. But at the heart of it, hints followed by guesses, said T.S. Eliot, and the rest is prayer, observance, thought, discipline. We need a lot of that right now. And uh, a lot of patience, too. That doesn't mean there aren't answers. That doesn't mean there aren't hard things to be faced and sorted. There are, and God willing, we will face them and sort them. But they've got to be done with that prayer and discipline. And with Mark 10 in mind, that we've got a lot of Jameses and Johns right now, the left and the right, as you said. I want to get this sorted out. I want to run this show. Sit at your right hand and your left, and then we'll know where we are. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're about. We've come to be servants servants of the world and servants of the church for the sake of God's mission in the world. And if the world simply looks at the church and sees brutal power games going on, what does it learn about the gospel of Jesus? Rather, it must see the suffering and humility of love, which will show, because that's a 2 Corinthians message, that the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in the power, the power of God's love. It's about as far as I can go on that. May, may I, would you like me to pray and bless these dear people? May we stand and uh, pray together. Father, we thank you for minds to think. We thank you for this beautiful place to wait on you, to gaze on your beautiful creation. We thank you for one another, for the gift of friendship and fellowship for the light of Christ that we see shining in one another's faces and that we hear speaking in one another's voices. Father, we thank you for the scriptures which, as they lie before us, contain so much more than we could possibly imagine and yet which again and again renew us and refresh us. 
We thank you for your Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us. We thank you that you call us to different tasks within the work of your kingdom. And we pray for one another now within that kingdom plan that you will call each one of us here today to see what we can and should be doing in little ways, in large ways, at home, away, wherever it is, to work for your kingdom, to build for your kingdom, to anticipate that day when the earth shall be full of your glory as the waters cover the sea. So, Father, bless us, we pray, with your presence, with your love, with your encouragement, with your wisdom, with your courage, that we may be for your world what your son Jesus was for Israel, that we may take forward the work of new creation in the power of the resurrection, in faith and hope and love. We ask it in Jesus' name and to his glory. Amen. So may Almighty God make you faithful to his calling, cheerful in his service, and fruitful for his kingdom. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you and remain with you and through you with all those to whom he sends you, now and always. Amen.